Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Welcome to Voices of Africa. I'm delighted today to be joined by Greg Murray. Greg is an Australian living in Nairobi. He is CEO and co-founder of Coco Networks, which is a venture-backed technology company with close to 700 staff in Kenya and India. And it's delivering clean cooking fuel at scale to residents of Nairobi city and the environs. It's a fantastic business. I've had the pleasure of observing it at close hand. And I wanted to take this opportunity to provide a platform for Greg to tell you, our audience, about this great business, about um, its history and its plans for the future. So welcome, Greg. Thanks, Marcus. Uh, good to be here. So tell us about Coco Networks. I'm obviously a little bit familiar, but I'd, I'd love you to share insights into your great company with our audience. Thanks. That's very kind. Sure. So Coco, the, the best way to think about us is we're a technology company that uh, both hardware and software technology that is leveraging a couple of the mega trends that are occurring uh, both in Africa and globally. And the first mega trend uh, that we see in Africa is urbanization. And the second trend that we see globally is this energy transition, the ascendancy of climate solutions. And so we're a climate tech company and going after one of the big polluting industries on the continent, which is the charcoal industry. So that's the baseline that we're replacing. The charcoal industry is produced through, charcoal is, is, is the dominant cooking fuel across urban Africa and produced through deforestation. So people take out the trees and basically carbonize the wood in simple earthen mounds and it makes its way to the city, long supply chains, and people heat their food with it. And so across the continent, there's, uh, there's over $30 billion spent on charcoal, which is deforesting about 2 million hectares a year of native forest. So big, big problem on the environmental front and obviously big problem from a family health perspective. So that's the context, that's the space in which we operate. And the technology itself is basically a liquid ethanol cooking fuel. That's a commodity that's produced at scale. But uh, what we do is enable it to be retailed very safely and very low prices through a network of smart fuel ATMs. So automated fuel dispensers, we call them Cocoa Points, go inside local mum and pop corner stores inside the low-income neighborhoods and customers have a smart canister they dock into the fuel ATM that recognizes them just like an ATM card does and says hi Mary please enter your pin etc checks the cloud and she's able to buy a day's amount of fuel or indeed a week's amount of fuel and she's paying through M-Pesa through mobile money which is dominant here in Kenya and so that's the consumer solution she then takes the fuel home and she refills her cocoa cooker which is a modern two burner ethanol cooker so we're doing really all of the consumer hardware. We're doing the last mile distribution hardware, which is the ATM inside the shop, which is the fleet of trucks that do the last mile distribution from the shell station. So it's this uh, fuel is stored underneath shell stations in Kenya, in Nairobi at present. And they're owned and operated by our fuel partner, Vivo Energy Kenya, which is the shell licensee. Uh, in Africa. So we're doing a piece of hardware on the shell station, on the small truck, uh, then in the shop, and then we're doing all the software as well. And long story short, what we're able to do is significantly undercut the, the price of charcoal. 
and give people a modern, clean, fast, safe solution, similar to LPG, but safer and significantly lower cost. And so, so that's the business. We've launched it at scale in Nairobi, so a dense network of 700 shops across Greater Nairobi and 100,000 customers, in fact, this week. We'll see the announcement later this week, but basically about 100,000 households and growing really rapidly. And so we do basically everything associated with the technology build, the operation of this network, et cetera, uh, ensuring that people can switch from dirty polluting and extremely unsafe charcoal through to clean, sustainable bioethanol. Wonderful, Greg. Thanks for that overview. It's great that you're signing up your 100,000th customer. That means that's the 100,000th person with a cocoa clean stove in their home, does it? Yeah, that's right. So that's roughly 400,000 Nairobians. 100,000 households uh, that have bought the appliance, have it, are cooking with it every day. That's the the milestone that we have just achieved this week. Wonderful. Congratulations. You mentioned that um, you've been able to undercut charcoal. It's a complex supply chain that, that you've created. How is it that you've been able to keep costs low in order to be price competitive? It's about two things, really. One is the last mile technology, and the second is scale. Last mile is really, really tricky in, in Africa you know, it's a foot-based retail economy. You know, we're selling a fast-moving consumer good, which is the fuel itself. And not only that, it's a liquid and it's flammable. That's the point of it. So there are, you know, significant safety challenges that you have to, engineering challenges that you have to overcome in order to make it ultra safe. And so historically, for example, this fuel has been sold in Southern, East and Western Africa, Haiti, different places that have this dirty cooking fuel crisis, but it's been sold in bottles and that's very expensive. What we do is uh, is take the bottling facility, take the single-use plastics, take the papers and pens and clipboards out of the entire last mile that delivers over 60 cents a litre cost reduction versus the bottling approach. So that's one, that use of technology to decost and make and pass those cost savings to customers. That's the, the main sort of set of innovations that are technology related. The second relates to scale. Now, energy industries are always something that benefit from economies of scale. And fuel in particular, you know, this is about very large amounts of fuel flowing through our systems. This is about large factories, which obviously have an economy of scale. This is about large scale consumer brand that we've had to create through TV and radio and outdoor. Obviously, you don't want to be doing that if you're just a SME. And so it's, it's approaching this problem with a view to scale and with a need for scale from the outset. That's been the other part of it. You know, a lot of the clean cooking phase has been well-meaning, well-intentioned sort of NGOs and government initiatives, but they're ultimately just small scale, don't achieve the price points and sort of operational efficiency that's required to really, you know, again, go after this huge market. And, and of course, you know, the problem is is accelerating. We can't be doing things sort of halfway or in baby steps. We need to be doing things in sort of a, in a reasonably um, aggressive approach to take on the challenges and the, the negative impacts that are caused by the baseline. This huge market, have you been able to quantify roughly what the market's worth we have and, and it's hard because it's informal yeah but there are you know world bank estimates that in in africa it's about 47 billion dollars spent on cooking fuel per year of which about 40 or so is charcoal or biomass charcoal and wood so the vast vast majority of course there is lpg which is a good fuel it's a hydrocarbon so it, it, it's not that climate friendly uh, it's a fossil fuel mm. but it's delivering a good consumer experience for the wealthy segment but it just it's very infrastructure intensive capital intensive so it has difficulty scaling into the mass market without subsidy uh, and then of course there's some kerosene at the bottom places like lagos at the bottom end of uh, nairobi uh, incomes as well kerosene has taken up a position which is also carcinogenic dirty fossil fuel but but yeah the vast majority is really forest-based fuel 
and with yeah. these long supply chains. Yeah. And based on the successes that you've been recording in in Nairobi and in Kenya, the ambition is to to scale up across the continent. Is it? Yeah, absolutely. What's required if you're going to build a new energy industry is customized technology, customized infrastructure, customized policy, and institutional capital. And really, we have the technology. This industry benefits from the fact that the infrastructure already exists. You know, there's been tens of billions of dollars worth of infrastructure built for the petrol and diesel retail space, you know, through to a petrol station. So we piggyback yeah. on that infrastructure. We partner with that infrastructure. Those owners, they're the arteries. We do the last mile capillaries. We think that there's a pretty, relatively speaking, pretty speedy pathway to scale into many countries. And that's certainly our plan, Take, taking a partnering approach. So where we can provide technology, capital, expertise, but also partner in the, the capability that exists, particularly in urban Africa and FMCG, that's really the approach. And so certainly other neighboring countries in East Africa, the near abroad, Uganda, Rwanda, Tanzania, are places we, uh, we intend to build networks. And then similarly, um, West Africa, you know, very interesting opportunities in, in Nigeria, Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, DRC. Really, there are 40 plus countries that need these networks. And, and uh, it's a question of you know, prioritization and how quickly we can speed up the deployment of those networks and with whom, et cetera. And you've got some significant partners, I know. Do you want to tell us a little bit about them and how they're playing into supporting you with your expansion strategy? Sure. We have partners, we have investment partners, we have infrastructure partners, we have um, trading partners for fuel and also for carbon, which is a significant part of the business. What we've really done is very much focus on getting it right in Kenya and then entertain discussions with, with other partners as well beyond Kenya. That's really the position. So we, we have the opportunity, I think, to you know, work with existing partners in scale, but we also have the opportunity to fundamentally uh, forge new partnerships. We're not really restricted from that. And so in the case of Kenya, it, I think I mentioned it's, it's Vivo, which owns and operates. I think it's the, the leading fuels company, Shell-branded stations and port storage assets and, and uh, et cetera. And so they're a great partner. They basically serve as the infrastructure and wholesale fuel trading partner for us. We get it to the petrol stations. They buy from local suppliers, regional suppliers, international suppliers. And then we basically ensure that it gets to the customer. So we do that last mile, the retailer and the customer facing stuff. So that model, we think, is, is something that we can scale working with infrastructure and trading partners into into every place in, in urban Africa that has petrol stations, which, which is obviously all of them. And so good discussions with multiple counterparties there on our expansion. And then similarly, you know, we have trading partnerships, a couple of them in the global carbon markets. They tend to be the larger commodities groups who understand carbon in some depth. And so they able to help us trade the regulatory commodity we produce, which is carbon credits, into global compliance and voluntary markets. And so, uh, so there's definitely options uh, to scale up those existing partnerships. And so that's, that's basically how it works. I'm glad you've introduced carbon finance and the carbon markets. I'm aware that this year is pretty seminal in terms of climate change negotiations at an international multilateral level, culminating in the Conference of Parties in Glasgow at the end of the year, but many international meetings taking place ahead of then. And we've seen the world's most industrialised economies make bold commitments in the last nine to 12 months around their own national commitments to achieving net zero emissions. Is your business well-placed to benefit from all this focus on climate change mitigation? Particularly, I'm thinking the focus that will inevitably come on preserving our most valuable carbon sinks, our forests. Is that something that you see as being a big flip for your business and a major factor in attracting perhaps new rounds of investors? I mean, in short, yes. 
It most certainly is. We're a climate tech company, first and foremost. We understand carbon markets and climate finance in some depth. And definitely there is a, you know, there is a serious mega trend around energy transition and pricing of carbon and cross-border carbon flows into developing countries. That's something that is only really going one way from a price and risk and, and, and flows perspective. And so we're definitely benefiting from that, both in terms of the commodities we sell, as well as the, the capital we're able to unlock from investment partners that also understand these mega trends and, and how we might play into them. But I mean, taking a, a step back from Coco specifically, if we want to talk about what I think is a really significant opportunity for Africa, and it's to play, to be frank, a greater role than historically it has within the cross-border carbon and climate space. We, we're all looking forward to COP26 in Glasgow this year. You know, it really is a unique time. The world's been pretty preoccupied with the pandemic, but just quietly over the last year, there's been, I think, more forward motion in terms of climate action than there has been in many, many other years combined. We've now got, I think, something like 75% of of global GDP under a, a net zero commitment, uh, including obviously the the states with with Biden's election recently, and you've got five years of tortuous negotiations over the Paris Agreement that are leading up finally to what most industry participants believe will be a conclusive rulebook at the cross border uh, market. You know, these 30 uh, also national and transnational or subnational markets that are, that, are, that are emissions trading schemes at present, basically having a common set of um, language through which they might integrate their markets and enable cross-border trading. And, and whilst there is not that many of those emissions trading schemes in Africa, there's a, a baby one underway in, uh, in South Africa, but not that many in com- comparatively, that doesn't stop Africa being a producer and exporter of uh, emissions reductions of credits for uh, industrialized markets. And that that is where I think there is a huge opportunity that is, I think, not really being adequately pursued yet, but will come because it, in my mind, the, the flows on an annual basis will very, very quickly eclipse the entirety of venture capital flows into Africa, which are now, you know, maybe a, a billion and a half dollars a year, something like that. Very, very quickly, the flows into Africa, into climate reduction projects and ventures and climate technology ventures will be multiples of that. And so it's, it's a huge opportunity for governments, but particularly for the private sector and particularly for folks that have the capacity to develop and operate and build stuff from scratch, which is often what's required. This is a significant time to get organized and to go after that. That's across lots of different sort of real economy sectors. And we're doing our bit within the forest protection space. And that's how our credits through avoiding the destruction of forests for charcoal are generated, but also looking at other opportunities to participate, to build and deploy climate technologies on the continent above and beyond the ethanol cooking technology we've invented. So I want to come on to that latter point in a moment, Greg, about having invested in this platform and, and achieved the scale that you have in Nairobi and in Kenya and to date and the brand awareness. That's a platform that I suspect, and from what you've just inferred, you'll be putting to more application beyond perhaps cooking fuels. But let's come on to that in a moment. I want to just keep on the carbon finance subject. I am enthused by your optimism around the opportunity for Africa. I share it. In fact, the organization that I lead, Africa Practice, wrote the first carbon finance guide to Africa in 2009. We were sponsored at the time by UNEP FI. We were very optimistic then that this would be a great source of of new funding for African development and development finance. In the event, um, I think we were all disappointed 
I think many people looked at the Red Plus scheme as well and thought that that might be an avenue of opportunity for African nations. And I think we've been disappointed there as well. I would agree that the scale of, of funding that seems to be being made available now for climate finance purposes is impressive and growing. Uh, we see announcements, frankly, from week to week, and those have picked up in pace over the last six months, as you mentioned. But do you feel that there are enough entrepreneurs, enough businesses, enough political leaders on the continent who are awake and aware of this opportunity and who recognise all that's required? As you said, it's, it's really about building something from scratch, laying down the policies, laws and regulations in order to qualify for these flows of, of capital. You're optimistic that we can get our act together and seize that opportunity? Yeah, I am. And I might give a roundabout answer to that question. You know, when we started COCO, there was something like, I don't know, 30 to $50 million worth of technology venture capital that came into the entire continent per year. And uh, back in that 2013, 2014 timeframe, so nothing. And now, obviously, that's grown 30 to 50x. And why is that relevant? Because what it speaks to is the emergence of a class of entrepreneurs across the continent that are able to solve very hard problems, albeit with a, perhaps an internet or, or tech-only lens, but able to solve very hard problems, create something from nothing, teams operate in difficult environments. Right, that's the tech entrepreneurs that break through in a place like Lagos or Kampala or Nairobi, I'd argue, have more grit and have had to overcome more hardship than your, your London, San Francisco, Sydney-based entrepreneurs in their own ecosystems because uh, you know the cards are really stacked against you in so many ways. And so you've got this skill set of developing business, of building difficult operating business. But what folks are solving for there is a unicorn story, is, is, often, is often the technology build and, and sell or build and list pathways that we see in the West and things like, you know, some fantastic fintech exits that have occurred recently that you might, must have been following with uh, with Paystack and, and I think yeah. our first unicorn. With, with the, so these are a good, good skills, but and I think they're transferable skills, that there is a class of capability, there is a set of capability that is being built in this sort of early stage make something from nothing that has figured out an API to global capital. It's got a different set of rules that it might have to learn around the, the global carbon markets and climate markets. You know, we're not talking about trying to you know, grow eyeballs onto an app. We're, we're talking about getting people to change behaviors and adopt lower carbon products or to shift agricultural practices or to conserve forests or, or national parks, you know, different sets of behaviors, but the training and the skill sets that, that the last decade, the emergence of the technology industry and tech startups, I think that is an asset that could be pretty easily ported into the climate tech space. And there will be the capital available at a greater scale, as I said, technology inflows. That's my view on it. So I am optimistic as a result. With regards to, to governments, perhaps I think there is an awareness that that finance can really flow into governments directly at scale. And I think there's obviously interest around exactly that. I also think there's good, really strong technical capability in a lot of governments. If you look at the negotiating positions that many African governments are taking because the, the strong technical folks in the environment ministry, et cetera, I'm not quite sure if that technical competence around this has yet flown upwards to the guys that are in control of the countries and can see the opportunities want to pursue them and make life easier for green industries to flourish so that they might participate in that as well. I think that's probably the next step. Thanks, Greg. I mentioned earlier that I, I wanted to challenge you to give us some insights perhaps into what you see as the application of the COCO business model 
to solutions beyond fuel. You've built this fantastic platform. You've still got a lot of growth that you're ambitious to realize, and not just in Kenya, but across the continent. But you said enough for us to be aware that or awake to the fact that you don't intend to stop with clean cooking fuel. How will you select the other products and services that you want to retail and, and roll out to your customer base? Yeah, there's definitely things that we could sell to customers and encourage them to shift their behavior from from a baseline carbon intensive practice to one that's clean, like we're doing with the fuel. But I'm, I'm also taking a broader lens. If you look at the countries on the continent, you know, I think we're all familiar with the stats. If you take out you know, South Africa and, and parts of North Africa, it's not industrialized generally. And so in a macro sense, you're probably not talking that much about factories and power points and, and, and transport. You know, that work needs to happen as well. But if you just look at the actual baseline emissions profile of countries, you know, you'll find that a lot of it is, is land-based. You know, we've still got 75% of the labor force in Kenya that's, that's in agriculture. You know, I'm, I'm from Australia. They used to paraphrase Australia's economy as a, you know, as a farm and a quarry, uh, mining and agriculture. We've evolved a bit. Maybe we're now a farm, a quarry, a, you know, a bank and a pub. Um, with the services sector, but it's still very primary, primary uh, production. And, and take that same lens to, to say Kenya, it's a farm, a small shop and a national park. That's the economy. Tourism, for fantastic uh, natural resources that are here, agriculture and trading shops. And so, you know, land-based, Australia, continental United States, uh, yet we've only got 25 million people. So we've got a lot of land. And, and uh, and what we're seeing is the emergence of a lot of soil carbon and uh, forest carbon and, and agricultural carbon uh, methodologies, practices, technologies. And you know, the, the states, the US itself, there's a bunch of great science going on there and technology development going on there. And so I'm sort of asking questions like, well, who, who is it that's really thinking about how these emergent technologies might apply in, in Africa? You know, one technology that I've been following, we're not saying we're doing it. It's just an intellectual interest at the moment. You know, I've been looking at uh, methane emissions from cattle. Australia is a big cattle country. Uh, Kenya is a big cattle country. The Norwegians and the Australians are leading at the moment in this race to commercialize technology around a particular type of seaweed that in its product form is a big factory, et cetera, but becomes a form of animal feed, animal supplement that enables the methane to be converted into more you know, meat production rather than expelled. So it has use in the cattle industry as a supplement in its own right. But of course, that methane that's not expelled is able to be monetized methodologies that are being written along with the technology you know so okay who's thinking about that for the dairy supply chain in kenya um, who's thinking about you know soil uh, application like biochar which has had a long history which has now got methodologies under development in a few places who's thinking about how that might fit into the into the maize value chain in kenya and so we're taking a sort of a pretty broad lens and saying okay well if it's not just about selling to our existing customer base something else that's low carbon if it's about taking our uh, you know, we have factories, we have the capacity to develop new business, we have the back capacity to operate business, we can find partners that are very strong in rural and in agricultural supply chains in different commodity supply chains in the production of them. Maybe we can work together with people to bring in, commercialize for African applications for, you know, distributed agriculture, perhaps rather than centralized agriculture. Who is it that's going to figure that out? and uh, monetize that and, uh, and then scale that across Africa. There's a huge opportunity in range of these sorts of emergent technologies. And so that's, if we take a long enough lens and look, look forward sort of 10 years, I think there's significant carbon emissions reductions and wealth to be created for participants across the value chain that, that, that are able to integrate these sort of technologies. And that's something that I'm certainly thinking pretty actively about in terms of uh, the medium term planning for cocoa. 
I'd like to bring you back to your motivations for founding Coco and to tell us a little bit more about that. I'm assuming that you understood the importance of the decarbonisation agenda, but I'm making some assumptions there. Tell us, please, what motivated you to found Coco at the outset? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a mix of motivations, but I like applied problem-solving nature of what we're doing. It's a big, hairy problem. Mm. You know, no one's really been able to solve it for 30, 40 years of focusing at it. It's, it's quite difficult to solve. We figured that we could systematically go deep on it. And if we took a, a broad enough lens and said, okay, we're happy to build technology, hardware, software, happy to build factories, we're happy to partner with infrastructure owners, we're happy to bring in institutional capital and build that. That was one. So sort of the utility of it, big, hairy problem, and we think we could solve it and scale it. Definitely, I think, a shared perspective around the importance of solving for environmental preservation on the continent. You know, I spent a lot of time before setting up COCA, traveling around and seeing the the forest destruction and understanding that, you know, 50% of it plus is, is from the charcoal markets. So that's definitely a motivator. Look, it's a grand adventure. That's part of the motivation. It's, it's fascinating doing what we do, and it's uh, never a dull day. It's a motivator. And uh, I think it's something that, that ultimately uh, needed to be done. And so, yeah, u- utility, autonomy, you know, solving problems, grand adventure, I think they're all things that uh, motivate me personally. But we're commercial guys. We understand that you can have adventures all you like. You're not going to solve these problems without raising institutional capital and bringing things to scale. So we're very commercially minded. But yeah, we think that these tools of capitalism can be used to solve big problems in difficult places. And that's what gets us out of bed in the morning. Inspiring. Greg, if there are any institutional investors or high net worth individuals who uh, are interested to invest in Coco Networks, what can they do? Who should they contact? They should contact me. We're not actively raising right now. We just closed a significant growth capital round, but we will be in the future. You know, if you take a view at the dozens of countries that need networks, ultimately there's going to need to be deployed one way or another uh, in hundreds of millions of dollars in the rollout of these networks across the continent. And so definitely we're going to raise capital in the future. You know, we're, we're interested in long-term investors that are aligned with our mission, but are commercially focused and that understand environmental markets in particular. Greg, it's been fascinating to hear you tell us about the history of, of Coco Networks and some of the ambitions you have for the future. Congratulations on, on where you've got to and the announcement that you've just shared with our listeners about the 100,000th customer that you've just registered in Kenya. You're growing at a fast pace and your ambition is for scale that, that few of us could imagine. So I wish you every success. Thank you so much for sharing those insights with our audience. Thank you very much, Marcus, for giving me the opportunity. It's a fun time in the business. It's difficult historically to get here, sort of brutal. As you said, we're going really well right now and looking forward to sort of expanding geographically, expanding uh, the products that we carry. So uh, onwards and upwards. Thank you again. Uh, This was good fun. Thank you for tuning into our Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.